Introduction, Section 13 of The Life of Jesus Critically Examined by David Friedrich Strauss, translated by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 13. The Possibility of the Existence of Mythi in the New Testament, Considered in Reference to the External Evidences. The assertion that the Bible contains mythi is, it is true, directly opposed to the convictions of the believing Christian. For if his religious view be circumscribed within the limits of his own community, he knows no reason why the things recorded in the sacred books should not literally have taken place. No doubt occurs to him, no reflection disturbs him. But let his horizon be so far widened as to allow him to contemplate his own religion in relation to other religions, and to draw a comparison between them. The conclusion to which he then comes is that the histories related by the heathens of their deities, and by the Muslim of his prophet, are so many fictions, whilst the accounts of God's actions, of Christ and other godlike men contained in the Bible, are, on the contrary, true. Such is the general notion expressed in the theological position. That which distinguishes Christianity from the heathen religions is this, they are mythical it is historical but this position thus stated without further definition and proof is merely the product of the limitation of the individual to that form of belief in which he has been educated which renders the mind incapable of embracing any but the affirmative view in relation to his own creed any but the negative in reference to every other a prejudice devoid of real worth and which cannot exist in conjunction with an extensive knowledge of history. For let us transplant ourselves among other religious communities. The believing Mohammedan is of opinion that truth is contained in the Koran alone, and that the greater portion of our Bible is fabulous. The Jew of the present day, whilst admitting the truth and divine origin of the Old Testament, rejects the New and the same exclusive belief in the truth of their own creed and the falsity of every other was entertained by the professors of most of the heathen religions before the period of the syncretism. But which community is right? Not all, for this is impossible, since the assertion of each excludes the others. But which particular one? Each claims for itself the true faith. The pretensions are equal. What shall decide? The origin of the several religions? Each lays claim to a divine origin. Not only does the Christian religion profess to be derived from the Son of God and the Jewish from God himself, through Moses, the Mohammedan religion asserts itself to be founded by a prophet immediately inspired by God. In like manner, the Greeks attributed the institution of their worship to the gods. It is urged, quote, but in no other religion are the vouchers of a divine origin so unequivocal as in the Jewish and the Christian. The Greek and Roman mythologies are the product of a collection of unauthenticated legends, whilst the Bible history was written by eyewitnesses, or by those whose connection with eyewitnesses afforded them opportunities of ascertaining the truth, and whose integrity is too apparent to admit of a doubt as to the sincerity of their intentions. Close quote. It would most unquestionably be an argument of decisive weight in favor of the credibility of the biblical history, could it indeed be shown that it was written by eyewitnesses 
or even by persons nearly contemporaneous with the events narrated but though errors and false representations may glide into the narrations even of an eyewitness there is far less probability of unintentional mistake intentional deception may easily be detected than where the narrator is separated by a long interval from the facts he records and is obliged to derive his materials through the medium of transmitted communications but this alleged ocular testimony or proximity in point of time of the sacred historians to the events recorded is mere assumption an assumption originating from the titles which the biblical books bear in our canon those books which describe the departure of the israelites from egypt and their wanderings through the wilderness bear the name of moses who being their leader would undoubtedly give a faithful history of these occurrences unless he designed to deceive and who if his intimate connection with deity described in these books be historically true was likewise eminently qualified by virtue of such connection to produce a credible history of the earlier periods in like manner of the several accounts of the life and fate of jesus the superscriptions assign one to matthew and one to john two men who having been eyewitnesses of the public ministry of jesus from its commencement to its close were particularly capable of giving a report of it and who from their confidential intercourse with jesus and his mother together with that supernatural aid which according to john jesus promised to his disciples to teach them and bring all things to their remembrance were enabled to give information of the circumstances of his earlier years of which some details are recorded by matthew but that little reliance can be placed on the headings of ancient manuscripts and of sacred records more especially is evident and in reference to biblical books has long since been proved in the so-called books of moses mention is made of his death and burial but who now supposes that this was written beforehand by moses in the form of prophecy many of the psalms bear the name of david which presuppose an acquaintance with the miseries of the exile and predictions are put into the mouth of daniel a jew living at the time of the babylonian captivity which could not have been written before the reign of antiochus epiphanes it is an incontrovertible position of modern criticism that the titles of the biblical books represent nothing more than the design of their author or the opinion of jewish or christian antiquity respecting their origin points the first of which proves nothing and as to the second everything depends upon the following considerations one the date of the opinion and the authority on which it rests two the degree of harmony existing between this opinion and the internal character of the writings in question the first consideration includes an examination of the external the second of the internal grounds of evidence respecting the authenticity of the biblical books to investigate the internal grounds of credibility in relation to each detail given in the gospels for it is with them alone we are here concerned and to test the probability or improbability of their being the production of eyewitnesses or of competently informed writers is the sole object of the present work the external grounds of evidence may be examined in this introduction 
only so far however as is necessary in order to judge whether they yield a definite result which may perhaps be in opposition to the internal grounds of evidence or whether the external evidence insufficient of itself leaves to the internal evidence the decision of the question we learn from the works of irenaeus of clemens alexandrinus and of tertullian that at the end of the second century after christ our four gospels were recognized by the orthodox church as the writings of the apostles and the disciples of the apostles and were separated from many other similar productions as authentic records of the life of jesus the first gospel according to our canon is attributed to matthew who is enumerated among the twelve apostles the fourth to john the beloved disciple of our lord the second to mark the interpreter of peter and the third to luke the companion of paul we have besides the authority of earlier authors both in their own works and in quotations cited by others it is usual in reference to the first gospel to adduce the testimony of papias bishop of hierapolis said to have been an auditor of john probably the presbyter and to have suffered martyrdom under marcus aurelius one sixty one to one eighty papias asserts that matthew the apostle wrote ta logia ta curiaca schleiermacher straining the meaning of logia has latterly understood it to signify merely a collection of sayings of jesus but when papias speaks of mark he seems to use syntaxin ton curiacon logion poi aistai and ta upo tau christau e lecthenta e prakthenta graphine as equivalent expressions whence it appears that the word logia designates a writing comprehending the acts and fate of jesus and the fathers of the church were justified in understanding the testimony of papias as relating to an entire gospel they did indeed apply this testimony decidedly to our first gospel but the words of the apostolic father contain no such indication and the manuscript of which he speaks cannot be absolutely identical with our gospel for according to the statement given by papias matthew wrote in the hebrew language and it is a mere assumption of the christian fathers that our greek matthew is a translation of the original hebrew gospel precepts of jesus and narratives concerning him corresponding more or less exactly with passages in our matthew do indeed occur in the works of other of the apostolic fathers but then these works are not wholly genuine and the quotations themselves are either in a form which indicates that they might have been derived from oral traditions or where these authors refer to written sources they do not mention them as being directly apostolic many citations in the writings of justin martyr who died one sixty six agree with passages in our matthew but there are also mixed up with these other elements which are not to be found in our gospels and he refers to the writings from which he derives them generally as apomnemonumata ton apostolon or euagelia without naming any author in particular celsus the opponent of christianity subsequent to one fifty mentions that the disciples of jesus had written his history and he alludes to our present gospels when he speaks of the divergence of the accounts respecting the number of angels seen at the resurrection 
but we find no more precise reference to any one evangelist in his writings, so far as we know them through origin. We have the testimony of the same Papias who has the notice concerning Matthew, a testimony from the mouth of John, that Mark, who according to him was the interpreter of Peter, wrote down the discourses and actions of Jesus from his recollections of the instructions of that apostle. Ecclesiastical writers have likewise assumed that this passage from Papias refers to our second gospel, though it does not say anything of the kind, and is besides inapplicable to it. For our second gospel cannot have originated from recollections of Peter's instructions, that is, from a source peculiar to itself, since it is evidently a compilation, whether made from memory or otherwise, from the first and third gospels. As little will the remark of Papias that Mark wrote without order apply to our gospel, for he cannot, by this expression, intend a false chronological arrangement, since he ascribes to Mark the strictest love of truth, which, united with the consciousness that he had not the means of fixing dates, must have withheld him from making the attempt. But a total renunciation of chronological connection, which Papias can alone have meant to attribute to him, is not to be found in the second gospel. This being the case, what do those echoes which our second gospel, in like manner as our first, seems to find in the most ancient ecclesiastical writers, prove? That Luke, the companion of Paul, wrote a gospel, is not attested by any authority of corresponding weight or antiquity with that of Papias in relation to Matthew and to Mark. The third gospel, however, possesses a testimony of a particular kind in the Acts of the Apostles, not indeed authenticating it as the composition of Luke, but attributing it to an occasional companion of the Apostle Paul. According to the proem to the Acts and that to the Gospel of Luke, these two books proceeded from the same author or compiler, an origin which these writings do not, in other respects, contradict. In several chapters in the second half of the book of Acts, the author, speaking of himself together with Paul, makes use of the first person plural, and thus identifies himself with a companion of that apostle. The fact is, however, that many of the details concerning Paul contained in the other parts of the book of the Acts are so indefinite and marvelous, and are moreover so completely at variance with Paul's genuine epistles, that it is extremely difficult to reconcile them with the notion that they were written by a companion of that apostle. It is also not a little remarkable that the author, neither in the introduction to the Acts nor in that to the Gospel, alludes to his connection with one of the most distinguished of the apostles, so that it is impossible not to suspect that the passages in which the writer speaks of himself as an actor in the scenes described belong to a distinct memorial by another hand, which the author of the Acts merely incorporated into his history. But leaving this conjecture out of the question, it is indeed possible that the companion of Paul may have composed his two works at a time and under circumstances when he was no longer protected by apostolic influence against the tide of tradition, and that he saw no reason why, because he had not heard them previously from this apostle, he should therefore reject the instructive, and, 
according to his notions which certainly would not lead him to shun the marvellous, credible narratives derived from that source. Now it is asserted that because the book of the Acts terminates with the two years' imprisonment of Paul at Rome, therefore this second work of the disciple of that apostle must have been written during that time, 63 to 65 A.D., before the decision of Paul's trial, and that, consequently, the Gospel of Luke, the earlier work of the same author, could not have been of later date. But the breaking off of the Acts at that particular point might have been the result of many other causes. At all events, such testimony, standing alone, is wholly insufficient to decide the historical worth of the Gospel. It were to be wished that Polycarp, he died 167, who both heard and saw the Apostle John, had left us a testimony respecting him similar to that of Papias concerning Matthew. Still, his silence on this subject, in the one short epistle which has come down to us, is no evidence against the authenticity of that gospel, any more than the more or less ambiguous allusions in several of the apostolic fathers to the epistles of John are proofs in its favor but it is a matter of surprise that irenaeus the disciple of polycarp who was called upon to defend this gospel from the attacks of those who denied its composition by john should neither on this occasion nor once in his diffuse work have brought forward the weighty authority of his apostolic master as to this fact whether or not the fourth gospel originally bore the name of john remains uncertain we meet with it first among the Valentinians and the Montanists, about the middle of the second century. Its apostolic origin was, however, immediately after, denied by the so-called Allogai, who ascribed it to Serinthus, partly because the Montanists derived from it their idea of the Paraclete, partly also because it did not harmonize with the other Gospels. The earliest quotation expressly stated to be from the Gospel of John is found in Theophilus of Antioch about the year 172. How little reason the numerous theologians of the present day have to boast of the evidences in favor of the fourth Gospel, whilst they deny the not less well-attested apocalypse, has been well remarked by Tholuck. Lastly, that there were two Johns, the Apostle and the Presbyter, living contemporaneously at Ephesus, is a circumstance which has not received sufficient attention in connection with the most ancient testimonies in favor of the derivation from John, of the Apocalypse on the one hand, and of the Gospels and Epistles on the other. Thus, these most ancient testimonies tell us, firstly, that an Apostle, or some other person who had been acquainted with an Apostle, wrote a Gospel history, but not whether it was identical with that which afterwards came to be circulated in the church under his name. Secondly, that writings similar to our Gospels were in existence, but not that they were ascribed with certainty to any one individual apostle or companion of an apostle. Such is the uncertainty of these accounts, which, after all, do not reach further back than the third or fourth decade of the second century. According to all the rules of probability, the apostles were all dead before the close of the first century, not excepting John, 
who is said to have lived till A.D. 100, concerning whose age and death, however, many fables were early invented. What an ample scope for attributing to the apostles manuscripts they never wrote. The apostles, dispersed abroad, had died in the latter half of the first century. The gospels became more widely preached throughout the Roman Empire, and by degrees acquired a fixed form in accordance with a particular type. It was doubtless from this orally circulated gospel that the many passages agreeing accurately with the passages in our gospels, which occur without any indication of their source in the earliest ecclesiastical writers, were actually derived. Before long, this oral traditionary gospel became deposited in different manuscripts, this person or that, possibly an apostle, furnishing the principal features of the history but these manuscripts were not at first compiled according to a particular form and order and consequently had to undergo many revisions and rearrangements of which we have an example in the gospel of the hebrews and the citations of justin it appears that these manuscripts did not originally bear the names of their compilers but either that of the community by whom they were first read as the gospel of hebrews or that of the apostle or disciple, after whose oral discourses or notes some other person had composed a connected history. The latter seems to have been the original meaning attached to the word kata, as in the title to our first gospel. Nothing, however, was more natural than the supposition which arose among the early Christians, that the histories concerning Jesus, which were circulated and used by the churches, had been written by his immediate disciples. Hence, the ascription of the gospel writings generally to the apostles by Justin and by Celsus, and also of particular gospels to those particular apostles and disciples, whose oral discourses or written notes might possibly have formed the groundwork of a gospel manuscript, or who had perhaps been particularly connected with some certain district, or had been held in especial esteem by some particular community. The Gospel of the Hebrews successively received all three kinds of appellations, being first called Euagelion Kath Hebraeus, after the community by which it was read, somewhat later Evangelium Juxta Duodecim Apostolos, and finally Secundum Matthaeum. Admitting, however, that we do not possess the immediate record of an eyewitness in any one of the four Gospels, it is still very incomprehensible, replies the objector, how in Palestine itself, and at a time when so many eyewitnesses yet lived, unhistorical legends and even collections of them should have been formed. But in the first place, the fact that many such compilations of narratives concerning the life of Jesus were already in general circulation during the lifetime of the apostles and more especially that any one of our gospels was known to an apostle and acknowledged by him can never be proved with respect to isolated anecdotes it is only necessary to form an accurate conception of palestine and of the real position of the eyewitnesses referred to in order to understand that the origination of legends even at so early a period is by no means incomprehensible who informs us that they must necessarily have taken root in that particular district of Palestine where Jesus tarried longest, and where his actual history was well known, 
and with respect to eyewitnesses, if by these we are to understand the apostles, it is to ascribe to them absolute ubiquity, to represent them as present here and there, weeding out all the unhistorical legends concerning Jesus in whatever places they had chanced to spring up and flourish. Eyewitnesses, in the more extended sense, who had only seen Jesus occasionally and not been his constant companions, must, on the contrary, have been strongly tempted to fill up their imperfect knowledge of his history with mythical representations. But it is inconceivable, they say, that such a mass of mythi should have originated in an age so historical as that of the first Roman emperors. We must not, however, be misled by too comprehensive a notion of an historical age. The sun is not visible at the same instant to every place on the same meridian at the same time of year. It gleams upon the mountain summits and the high plains before it penetrates the lower valleys and the deep ravines. No less true is it that the historic age dawns not upon all people at the same period. The people of highly civilized Greece and of Rome, the capital of the world, stood on an eminence which had not been reached in Galilee and Judea. Much rather may we apply to this age an expression become trite among historians, but which seems in the present instance willingly forgotten, namely, that in credulity and superstition, skepticism and fanaticism go hand in hand. But the Jews, it is said, had long been accustomed to keep written records. Nay, the most flourishing period of their literature was already past. They were no longer a progressing and consequently a productive people. They were a nation verging to decay. But the fact is, the pure historic idea was never developed among the Hebrews during the whole of their political existence. Their latest historical works, such as the Book of the Maccabees, and even the writings of Josephus, were not free from marvelous and extravagant tales. Indeed, no just notion of the true nature of history is possible without a perception of the inviolability of the chain of finite causes, and of the impossibility of miracles. This perception, which is wanting to so many minds of our own day, was still more deficient in Palestine, and indeed throughout the Roman Empire. And to a mind still open to the reception of the marvelous, if it be once carried away by the tide of religious enthusiasm, all things will appear credible, and should this enthusiasm lay hold of a yet wider circle, it will awaken a new creative vigor, even in a decayed people. To account for such an enthusiasm, it is by no means necessary to presuppose the gospel miracles as the existing cause. This may be found in the known religious dearth of that period, a dearth so great that the cravings of the mind after some religious belief excited a relish for the most extravagant forms of worship. Secondly, in the deep religious satisfaction which was afforded by the belief in the resurrection of the deceased Messiah, and by the essential principles of the doctrine of Jesus. End of section 13